This is Sacred Tension, the podcast about the spiritual discipline of asking questions. My name is Stephen Bradford Long. When I was a teenager, I went to an organization called Youth with a Mission, or YWAM for short. And I was there for two years, went through what's called a discipleship training school and then a school of worship. It, YWAM is the largest, one of the largest missions organizations in the world. And as I, I'm 29 now, I've put about 10 years between me and YWAM. And the more time that passes, I start, I, I'm wondering more and more about the nature of that experience. Was I in a cult? The more I step back from my experience in YWAM, the more traumatic I realize it was, the more damaging I realize it was to me. And I realized that I've spent a good amount of my 20s working through the messages and programming and lessons I learned in YWAM and trying to distance myself from YWAM. So joining me today is Chris Shelton, former Scientologist. He is a friend of the show. We've had several conversations. Chris, thank you so much for joining me. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. So basically the idea for this show is I'm going to walk Chris through my experience with YWAM. And Chris offering his expertise as a, um, what do you call yourself, a cult expert? I would say that I am educated in the subject. I, I don't know that, you know, expert is particularly the word I would use. I would say I'm an expert in Scientology. Sure, absolutely. And so you've been working tirelessly to kind of bring down Scientology and expose Scientology. And that, that gives you expertise in, in other cults. Well. well, through the yeah, through learning what the hell happened to me, you know, in the 27 years I was involved in that nonsense, I have learned a great deal about uh, high control groups, undue influence, um, and of course critical thinking and 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 you know what is reasonable thought and reason and and logic and how does these things work, because, you know, let's face it, when we're when we're getting involved in some of these groups. Uh, we are letting our emotions rule our behavior, Absolutely. and uh, and that's and that's and that's part of the package of being involved in a destructive cult is that there is a lot of appealing to your emotions and a lot of effort made to get you not thinking too much about what's actually going on. Absolutely. And so for listeners who are interested, I, I have another episode. It's actually the first episode of this podcast in which I interview Chris Shelton about his experience in Scientology. So if you are interested in hearing what he has to say, definitely go listen to that. Also go listen to his Sensibly Speaking podcast, which is really awesome. He covers <laughs> especially Scientology, but really cults of all different kinds. And and um, he he's doing great work trying to wake people up and trying to uh, encourage critical thinking. You used a term just a minute ago that's really interesting. You said destructive cult. Yes. Are there... Is there such and and this is just a question that mm -hmm. I have and we'll get into it with YWAM in just a minute. But is there such a thing as destructive and then non-destructive cults? Yes, there definitely is. Um, a cult, by definition, is simply any group. If you look it up in the dictionary, that is aligned around a common purpose or a bunch of people who get together and they're pretty tight knit, you know, and and that sort of thing. Or any organized group could be, technically speaking, called a cult. So we differentiate that from a destructive group that actually is involved in manipulation, exploitation, and abuse by calling it a destructive cult. I see. So really just about anything can be a cult is what you're saying. Well, yeah, there's tons of cults out there. I mean, you have cult followings for celebrities, you have cults of belief, you have cults of, of politics, you have all kinds of groups that are that you could call technically, uh, you know, by the definition, a cult. We have this derogatory connotation to it, and that actually came from the Christians in the 1920s and the, when, the, when the fundamentalists came along. There's a whole history to the word mm. as to how it got, you know, sort of bad connotations connected with it. 
but it since it's such a uh, charged word, I guess you could say, or you know, I mean, people have a lot of uh, associations around the word cult. Uh, it's you know, there it's it's uh, controversial in some circles. But when I when I go out of my way to use the term destructive cult, then I can more closely approximate what it is I'm trying to get across and also refer to actual academic work that's been done that lays out the characteristics and activities of a destructive cult versus people who follow a celebrity or people who sure. follow a political system or something like that. Sure. And and so hopefully, you know, during this conversation, you can refer some to that scholarly work as to whether YOM is a destructive cult or not. Absolutely. I've actually got this checklist put together right in front of me right now, uh, which was written by a, a wonderful woman, PhD, Anya Lalich, who has written uh, a number of books about cults and cult behavior, including Take Back Your Life, Mm. Recovering, recovering from cults and abusive relationships, and she, uh, this checklist is in that book, and uh, and I I have found it. I hit on it very early on when I got out of Scientology, trying again to figure out what the hell happened to me. Yeah, and this this checklist is uh, is something I hit on early on that has given me a lot of, um, given me a great tool to use to judge or evaluate a group as to whether it is more on the side of, you know, destruction or is it simply a harmless group of people who, you know, like to eat marshmallows or something. Right, right, right. All right. Well, so before we get into it, just a few things that I feel like I need to say about YWAM. So the reason I'm doing this interview is because I wrote an article called Was I in a Cult? My Experience with Youth with a Mission. And I wrote this in 2016 and basically laying out the question of whether I was in a cult and my experience in YWAM. And it is the most read article on my website. And I get hits every single day from people searching, uh, trying to find information on whether youth with a mission is dangerous or a cult. And so there's a lot of interest in this subject, and there isn't much information out there. Lots and lots and lots of young people, high schoolers, college students, so on, go into youth with a mission. And I think that there are a lot of family members who are maybe nervous. And and so maybe this will help shine some light. Now, also, one of the side effects of that article was that a lot of people got really mad at me. (laughs) And Oh, yes, I'm sure. Oh, man. And and lots of people, lots of friends of mine in Youth With a Mission were very upset with me. And so I just and I'm sure that they will be that people will be upset with me for this episode as well. And I just need to lay out there that my purpose is never to upset people. My purpose is to explore and ask questions and and to try to get to the bottom of things. And there is a lot of worry about YWAM being a cult, and that is there just in the public. And, and so that is something that needs to be addressed. My attention is never to upset people, but if you want, if you are in youth with the mission and you want to respond to this, you want to talk about this, let me know. Send me a message. I'd be happy to talk. All right. Well, with that, how about if we just start with going through the checklist for that you have in front of you for what is a dangerous cult? Could you just read through that? And so we have that in our mind as we start. Uh, absolutely. Um, now, there's a number of points on this checklist, so I don't know that we want to go over all of them from the get go. But I thought that okay. we might go over a couple just to give an idea of some of the, the way the checklist is put together. It's not meant to be a scale or a definitive checklist. Um, it's you know it's it's more of an analytical tool, I guess you could say, than it is a diagnostic instrument, if you were going to put it that way. Sure. You know, in other words, it gives you some guidelines, some things to look at, and it's not the matter that if one or two of these are checked off, oh my God, it's a destructive cult. You know, it's more like, okay, let's <laughs> let's go through this. Let's look at it on a case by case basis, you know, and let's and and let's be rational about this now. It's not a black and white thing. Sure. Awesome. Because of course that would be 
cult-like. Yes, <laughs> you're right. The lack of nuance. Okay. Exactly. So, but here, for example, uh, the very first thing on the checklist, the, the group displays excessively zealous and unquestioning commitment to its leader and whether he is alive or dead regards his belief system, ideology, and practices as the truth, as law. Hmm. And of course, we say he, we could also, of course, be talking about she or they, the leadership could be, you know, one person or a group of people. But if there is an excessive, uh, you know, zealous, unquestioning commitment to an individual, you know, you, you start going, hmm, you know, hmm, I, I you know, I think maybe we might want to <laughs> take a, you know, the, 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 the judgment factor comes in with with it, what is excessive mean here. You know? Yes, absolutely. But I think people get the idea pretty quickly of, of you know, what, what would that mean and how would that be demonstrated? Mm. Uh, another example is, uh, another point here is questioning, doubt, and dissent are discouraged or even punished. Mm. And, uh, right, if you start questioning what's going on, if you go, well, I'm not so sure about this, uh, not only are people going to say, oh, you shouldn't talk that way, you know, oh my God, I, I, you know, I, sh I don't think you should be saying that, but it could even lead to repercussions or consequences of a negative nature, you know, being socially ostracized, being uh, kicked out of the group, being punished with manual labor of some kind, given being mm. um, subjected to some kind of emotional or psychological abuse or punishment, uh, merely because you're asking questions. You're wondering, well, is this really, is, is what dear leader is telling us really the only way we can look at or act or something like that, right? Mm. That would be another characteristic uh, that all by itself doesn't necessarily mean you're in a destructive cult, but it's, a, it's an indicator, it's a pointer or a red flag that maybe something's wrong here. Awesome. Okay. So let me just give you some background on Youth with a Mission. Yeah. And, you know, I was I was doing some research before the show and I, I just felt instantly overwhelmed trying to trying to trying to understand its history, trying to under because it it's uh, an incredibly huge and decentralized organization. There mm. are bases. So the way YWAM functions is that it's it's essentially a network of bases and each base there there are bases all over America and there are bases throughout the world there are bases in in almost every single country from what i understand mm -hmm. and each base kind of cultivates its own leadership and its own internal culture and okay and so what this means is that individual bases can can differ radically. There are some bases that can be very, very healthy and then other bases that can be incredibly unhealthy. Mm. And now there is a hierarchy from what I understand. And now I couldn't find anything about the internal leadership of YWAM when I was, you know, trying to, to read up on it. Maybe I was just looking in the wrong places. But I couldn't really find anything about the internal hierarchy, but I remember within when I was in the organization, there was talk about regional hierarchies and then those regional leaders being accountable to other higher leaders. So and so North American leaders and then the and then continental or country leaders being accountable to an even higher level of leadership. OK, so YWAM started in the 1960s. And according to YWAM.org, uh, according to their history, it was founded by Lauren Cunningham. And Lauren Cunningham was a 20-year-old young man. He was in the Bahamas. And he, late at night, one night, he had a vision. In June of 1956, Lauren Cunningham, a 20-year-old student from the United States, this is from the website, uh, was in the Bahamas. And he was laying in bed and he was looking at a map of the world. And then suddenly the map started moving 
And he started to have this vision of waves crashing onto the countries, crashing onto the continents. And so first there would be one wave and then it would recede. And then there would be another even greater wave and then it would recede. And then the wave would cover the continent. And this was hap- you know, happening across the map. And then suddenly these waves turned into armies of young people, armies of young people just like him taking the gospel of Christ to the world. And that was the vision that started Youth With a Mission. Mm -hmm. Now, from there, it was, it, it just built and built and built. And Lauren Cunningham, as far as I know, is still alive. That is basically the beginning. And then the first base, mm-hmm. I believe, was in Hawaii. The very, very first base was in Kona, Hawaii. Hmm. And that base is still in operation, and it is uh, the largest base um, in the world is Kona, Hawaii. And so Kona is kind of the the unofficial headquarters, I guess, for the hmm. base for for the organization. And um, and it's been active ever since. It's been active for several decades, according to the website. Um, it has over eight eighteen thousand workers, mm-hmm. and uh, it's been around for 50 years, according to its website. So 50 years. So he had this vision in the 60s. He had the so he had the vision in 1956. Oh, OK. Yeah. And then started started the organization soon thereafter. He started the organization soon thereafter. OK, got it. Yeah. And he was 20 years old at the time. So, yeah, he could very much still be alive, yeah. I suppose. Yeah. Uh, but it so. Are there books and guidelines and rules and that kind of thing issued from a central location to the various bases? There are core books. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so so the idea is that YWAM, first of all, no one gets paid by YWAM. All right. So people get so so people are basically raise money or give their savings in order to live on a base and go on these missions and be part of the staff to sustain the base or go to a school that YWAM provides. And then in these schools, there are kind of core documents, core books that come down from the leadership. One is called Friend Raising by Lauren Cunningham, which is basically about how to get people to give you money <laughs> to to be a YWAMer. Mm. Um, there's stuff about missions, there's stuff about, and, but part of the issue, I mean, YWAM's core mantra is to know God and to make him known. And that's basically it. I mean, from what I, from my experience in YWAM, that was it. There, there was an incredible lack of core doctrine, I guess you could say. And, so my so let me go ahead and tell some of my experience with YWAM. When, sure. When I got into it, I was a high school dropout. I was extremely depressed and anxious. I, I'd had a severe mental breakdown when I was 17. I was raised in a Christian home. And I was struggling to come to terms with my sexual orientation. And so I was recovering from my mental breakdown when I was 17. I dropped out of high school because of that, and then I did eventually get my GED and or or my um, my my diploma. And I was incredibly vulnerable. And part of the reason why I went to YWAM was because I felt like it was the only place where I could go. And I didn't feel like I was able to have a job. I didn't feel like I was able to go to college. My life was a wreck. But I had also had the, you know, in the wake of my mental breakdown, I'd had this radical mystical experience with Jesus where I was at a prayer meeting and these people were praying for me. And all of a sudden I, I felt the tangible presence of Christ in the room. I mean, I, I it was this this hallucinatory presence. I didn't see him, but I, it was like I felt his presence. And it was such a radical, altering experience for me. I felt like the only thing that I could do was go onto the mission field. 
And I'm, you know, in retrospect, I'm glad that it was youth with a mission and not, you know, Scientology or <laughs> some other some other cult because I was I was ripe for the picking. I mean, I, I could I was so, so vulnerable, just just desperate for something to impose some kind of order and meaning on my life. So the base I went to was the Charlotte base. And it was in this huge manor house. And we all lived there together in this huge manor house outside of Charlotte, North Carolina. And it was kind of culture shock because it was incredibly structured and it was incredibly insular. And so when you went into YWAM, when I went into YWAM, it was almost like I vanished from the rest of the world. And and I entered the culture of youth with a mission. Now, the DTS is the entry uh, course that every single person has to do in order to become a YWAMer. It is a six-month training program, three months of which is training, is teaching, and then the last three months is outreach, where you go to some foreign country and be a missionary. So during those first three months, here was the basic schedule. You would get up at seven, you had an hour of mandatory prayer, and then there would be uh, about uh, three hours, three to four hours of worship and then teaching. They would bring in some teacher for the week, some YWAM teacher for the week, and they would teach you theology, outreach, all kinds of stuff. And then there would be lunch. And then for the afternoon, you would work on the base. So I worked in the kitchen. And, I, and so I prepared meals and cleaned up the kitchen and cleaned up the dining room and, and all of that. And then came dinner, and then in the evening was free time, and then around 10 or 11, we went to bed, and then repeat. And that was it every single day. And that was also the life of a staffer. So there are kind of two, two sorts of people on a YWAM base. There are the students who are coming to the classes, who are coming to the courses that a YWAM base provides, like a DTS. And then there are staffers who are full-time members of the base. And this is the life of a staffer as well. Now, what they often said, what they actually said all the time during a discipleship training school was that the DTS, it, we, it stands for discipleship training school, but what it actually stands for is die to self. And that what the purpose is to die to your own will, your own ego, to live to God. And, okay. and, and to kind of well, die. That, that's where we've hit on the very first thing you've said so far that sounds a bit excessive. Okay. How so? Dying to any cause or anything is a little unhelpful if you're trying to absolutely <laughs> forward its goals and mission you're not going to do a lot uh help to that if you're dead uh the other thing of course is i understand the the symbolic reference there sure uh but it still sounds a bit zealous i mean the idea of of being so committed to something that you're willing to to either die for it or you have to go through some process of being of dying and being reborn uh, you know, that's that's a little bit interesting. Absolutely. In and of yeah. itself, it's not necessarily a, oh, my God, that's oh it. Oh, my it's God. <laughs> yes. It's just, it's just the first red flag, yes. as we were mentioning before. You know, the schedule, people working, people being committed to something. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Yeah, you know? absolutely. And, I mean, it was good to have that structure. And that kind of structure was was great for me. And, and I needed that structure. Yeah, structure can be very helpful for people who feel lost or adrift or who are, uh, you know, at, consider themselves outcasts in some fashion and don't know what to what to do or, or how to get along in the world. You know, so that that kind of community building can be very helpful for people. Absolutely. So, yeah. And and one of the things that I that I struggle with looking back on it is is it was equal parts traumatizing and life giving for me. And and so okay. there, there are parts of my experience with YWAM that were incredibly helpful for me. And then parts of it that, like I said in the intro, I've just spent years 
recovering from. So mm-hmm. uh, one of the other red flags for YWAM, and I mentioned this earlier, is that uh, no one gets paid by the organization. Well, I did. I did want to ask you about that. So how, how do they support themselves to do their work? They get money from churches. And so basically, there's this whole element of, of YWAM where they teach you to ask for money to do these missions or schools. And, and like, so, like GoFundMes? Like, um, well, I mean, when I was in it, it was before GoFundMes, but basically send but, well, out. Well, no, you know what I meant. I mean, yeah, crowd, yeah, yeah. Crowd yeah, ba- yeah basically crowdfunding to live on this base and take this, do this school or go onto the mission field for however long. And and so I knew families who had been in, in YWAM for decades and they they had lived this way for years. That's interesting, being supported by others on a donation basis. Yeah, exactly. And and so it was basically donation-based. And But then the other side of it is that sometimes that money just didn't come through and people blow their savings. My mom paid basically my whole way. Does that raise a red flag to you that no one gets paid to be in YWAM? No. Okay. There are volunteer organizations that operate all day, every day, all over the world. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with that. The, okay. One of the things about one of the other checklist points in regards to destructive cults is that the group is preoccupied with making money. Okay. And YWAM just is not preoccupied with making money at all. No, I don't get that from what you're saying. It sounds yeah. almost like, you know, you're doing you're paying for those services that you were receiving or that course you were doing and it was almost at cost. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I I agree with that. Plus you're getting fed, plus you're getting courses that you presumably value that you see worth in. Right. And those courses are designed to get you into a headspace or frame of mind where you're able to go out and do these missions? Yeah, basically. So it's also intended to just build your relationship with Christ and to build Mm -hmm. your your spiritual self and to die to self. And so now so let's get into some of the courses. You know, I I went back and pulled out some of my notes, my my old notebooks from this time. It was an interesting experience because to me now, 10 years later, reading it, it's kind of just incomprehensible. Lots of scripture, lots of Bible study, lots of stuff on how to raise money. So there's lots of course, there there was lots of teaching on, on how to build a support base. And that and I can understand why that would be that way if he's making an army of people who are supposed to be operating self-sufficiently. Exactly. exactly. And so that's in order to go out and spread the gospel, right? Exactly. And so that's totally, you know, that's totally understandable. We had one teacher, we had one course uh, it was a video course with by a guy named Cy Rogers. He's what's called an ex-gay, ex-gay meaning someone who was once gay but is now no longer. Mm-hmm. according to the evangelical worldview. And mm-hmm. it was about sexual wholeness and purity. And so... I'm sorry, this was part of the course? This was part of the course. Okay. Cy Rogers really uh he he really spoke to me he's he he was flamingly gay even you know even when he was supposed to be straight and have a wife and kids he was flamingly gay and basically what he 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 laid down the basic foundations of ex-gay thinking which is people are gay because of abuse that they experienced mm-hmm. in life and so mm-hmm. Or an absence of a father figure, an absence of male affection, and then as they grow up, that wound, be it from abuse or neglect, becomes eroticized and it is deeply broken and deeply sinful. It was during 
it, it was through that course that I internalized a lot of the damaging beliefs that I developed about myself as a gay person. Mm. It was also really what turned me against my parents. Um, mm. it, it really, really turned me against my parents because basically an ex-gay thinking and, and YWAM in general was very anti-gay and believed that gay people could become straight. And right. Well, and, well, that's in, OK. So they are against the practice of homosexuality. They're not against the individuals per se, because they think that those individuals can be salvaged. And exactly. Changed. Exactly. Now, they, okay. now, from what so, I so the accurate statement there is they're anti homosexuality. Exactly. Yeah. No, that's okay. a very, very I'll, good way to put it. They're anti. I want to be clear about that. Yes. Yeah. No, that's a good clarification. They're anti homosexuality. And, you know, this was this. This is kind of what what developed. This, this is kind of what created a rift between me and my family because I was taught that I was gay because of some neglect or harm on the part of my parents. And, okay. and so I, I kind of started to believe that it was my parents' fault. Well, it's interesting to me because it sounds like this guy, I'm sorry, what was his name again? Cy Rogers. Yes, yeah, Cy. It sounds like Cy was simply projecting his own experience onto okay well this was the solution for everybody because it was the solution for me absolutely yeah and you know he's speaking to his own experience but then to, to it's a complete you know horribly unreasonable and illogical to take one's own experience and project that out to this is now why it happens to everyone else and and you know i don't know about cy rogers particularly i don't I haven't kept up with him, but a lot of these ex-gay leaders have since come out and said, it doesn't, this doesn't work. I'm still as gay as I was when I was a teenager. And they break up with their wives or whatever, and they basically say it, it doesn't work, and they apologize for the harm they've done. I, um, and I could understand why that would be that way. It sounds like a situation, I mean, to be completely evaluative here, I mean, I'm just laying out my own thoughts on this, but it sounds as though they are... Um, experiencing a major cognitive dissonance. In other words, two opposing yes. ideas, you know, held together at the same time in their head. Uh, and they have to somehow reconcile those ideas because they have, for example, a love for Christ or a love for their interpretation or idea of what Christ wants or what God wants on one hand, and yet they have these feelings, ideas, and emotions, and and attitudes, and that they've that they've that they're experiencing, whether you know all their life or whenever it started, that are homosexual in nature. Yes, and they have to reconcile these two things because they're being told that you know God is love, God is this, God is that, but. God ain't so interested in you being a homosexual. That's sinful activity. It goes against yes. the word of God. And so therefore it's unacceptable behavior. And they have to reconcile that. So it sounds like Cy reconciled that by blaming, you know, other people and figuring out how he could work that out for himself. And then he, you know, got himself a wife and got himself some kids and good for him for have, for having a family. And yet at the same time, if that's just a beard, <laughs> You exactly. Know, then, you know, I feel sorry for the guy because maybe he's having to, you know, sort of maintain this this lie or something. I can't I don't know the man. I can't. So I'm I'm totally just kind of throwing sure. all this out there as a as a could be uh, what's going on kind of situation. But you mentioned other people tried to do this same kinds of reconciliation and couldn't live with themselves because they're, you know, core they're gay. Who they, who they are is, you know, a gay person. Exactly. And, so, and they can't reconcile that with the belief, even though they tried. And so it becomes this big problem. That's not uh, unique to YWAM. Absolutely. Of course. Absolutely. You know? and, it's, and it sounds as, and the belief, of course, that homosexuality is a sin is also not unique to YWAM. There's, you know, far too many of these of these Christian groups who who push this and and force this cognitive dissonance on people because they have to 
make this Sophie's choice that they that they're stuck with and they can't figure out what to do and it causes emotional and psychological you know uh, trauma for them absolutely yeah exactly and and so in this situation I, I remember I, I started to get into this space of incredible highs and incredible lows where the the highs were you know it's just kind of this entire environment built on, mystical experience and yeah and and so and so the highs started to come faster and harder the longer i was in the organization and so faster and faster and longer yeah faster and longer and more intense yeah that's interesting and by highs i'm sorry to interrupt but no you're good do you mean uh in terms of religious yeah yeah i mean religious profound Found emotional experience. I mean, just times when I would be during prayer, I would just be weeping because I felt like I was connecting to God in this profound way. Times when I was speaking in tongues, times when I would have these enormous feeling epiphanies or moments of of waking up. And it, also every every tiny thing started to feel incredibly symbolic in, in a strange way. Every single thing became a sign from God. Every single thing became a every single thing became um, sacred or imbued with meaning from the divine in some way. Let me ask you a couple of questions about that. Was that, I'm, I'm positive that such epiphanies were not discouraged by the group you were in, but were they, were they encouraged or, uh, even in hindsight implanted in Uh, some way? Definitely. I mean, definitely both. I mean, I, the whole purpose, okay. the whole purpose of the DTS is to create a space where people can can have these experiences. At least that was the impression that I got. And these the kind of uh, routines that you were involved in, you mentioned speaking in tongues. Was there meditation or chanting or any other kind of repetitive trance-inducing activity going yes. on? So worship music, um, we we did a lot of worship, a lot of singing, and a lot of the songs that we sang were very repetitive and trance-inducing. Okay. Yeah. That that in and of itself can certainly be, is recognized as a, as a kind of indoctrination or control mechanism. Uh, it's very common in different religious groups, mm. uh, especially the speaking in tongues and the and the chanting. Yeah. You see people in the Hare Krishnas jumping up and down and saying the same thing over and over and over again. Or uh, in TM, in Transcendental Meditation, you have people for hours and hours and hours, I mean, 10 hours a day sitting and chanting and meditating to try to, you know, to put themselves into these trance states. And it is an altered state of consciousness when you get into a trance state. It's on a spectrum. So there's, you know, it's it's not like a trance is an absolute condition. Sure. You can be more or less in a trance state, mm. but and therefore more or less in an altered state of being uh, when you're in a trance. But it, it is possible through that trance induction that's what hypnotism mm. is involved in, right? Right. So so this kind of thing can be, and I have to be very careful here because I want to be very clear about what I'm saying. It can be used in a destructive fashion. Right. Right? It can be used in a controlling fashion. Merely going into a trance is not. We it happens all the time. I mean, people, you know, kids in school go into trances in the middle of algebra, right? So it's not. And again, on a spectrum, right? Uh, I would say that would be a fairly light trance compared to chanting for five hours, and and you're off in you know universe X and, and you're <laughs> not even seeing the room, you know, that you're in right now, right? Right. I mean, right. Right. There's there's various levels of this, but when you are doing it on purpose. And when you're doing it, you know, when people are are putting, uh, when you have leaders who are putting followers into trance states, one has to be careful uh, because, you know, what's the purpose of that activity? 
what is the result or consequences of that activity? What is being done during that activity? Because believe me, it is easy. And I'm not at all saying or even implying that this happened to you. I'm merely stating the fact that when people are put into these altered states of being, it is easy to implant hypnotic level suggestions or commands to them. Mm. And it sounds really weird and nefarious, but it's actually not. It's again, this is if you just relate it back to hypnotism, it's it's the same kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. You know, and that kind of activity, therefore, is something that can, you know, it's something I start going, mm, let's okay, let's really examine what's going on here. And uh and and what's the purpose again, what's the purpose of the activity? And and what exactly was done during the the trance states. And and so what we're not saying is that a trance state is fundamentally good or bad. No, there's no and, value judgment connected. Yeah, absolutely. And and so I think and you know, just thinking back to when I think about the message that I received during these trance states, it was it was deeply connected to my sexuality. And because of that, I feel like the message that I repeatedly received, I mean, when I say it was connected to my sexuality, I mean, that was what I was working on. That is what I was dealing with at the time. And, Mm -hmm. and the message that I received from the world around me is, is that the state that I am in my neutral state of being gay is not acceptable. It it isn't good. And right. I need to change that. And as long as I don't change it, I'm fundamentally broken. And, you know, I went, right. so I went through a lot of prayer ministry. People really, lots of people prayed for me, laid hands on me to receive healing from my homosexuality. It was like my homosexuality was the project <laughs> for me. Well, exactly. And I'm, I'm wondering it, when you were in that experience, were you communicating that to the leadership? Yes, and the leadership knew, and the leadership were working with me on it. And there was one okay. one woman in particular who, who, um, you know, big holy roller. I mean, mat, you know, speaking in tongues and anointing with oil and just the you know Pentecostal is all get out and she specifically ministered to the gay community and so she kind of took me under her wing and and was praying for me and base and the message I received over and over and over again and this isn't an inference this is what she actually said this is what the people at the base actually said including Cy Rogers during that video course mm-hmm. is that I was broken because I was wounded and this wound, mm-hmm. this relational mm-hmm. wound was sexualized when I hit puberty and now I'm gay. It is impossible for me to uh, have a meaningful relationship with another man because it is based in a wound. It is absolutely impossible. It is it is dangerous. It is physically unhealthy. And uh, the only way forward is to be healed, essentially. Right. essentially. And... So and that is where the lows came in. And so I would have these gigantic hot. Yeah. And I remember having these these. okay. so the gigantic the gigantic highs, I would have these these transcended experiences of feeling, you know, encountering God and feeling like I was being healed of homosexuality. And then the lows were these horrific moments of feeling trapped in my sexuality and and trapped in my trapped with myself in this feeling of being fundamentally untouchable, unlovable, totally broken as I am right now in the present moment being gay mm. mm-hmm. and and just waiting for that that beatific touch from God that would, you know, wipe out my sexuality um, and, and make it. Holier. Well, this well, this certainly sounds like a very uh, traumatic sort of situation it was it was totally traumatic yeah. yeah i mean it's we're talking about you know an attempted gay conversion therapy activity absolutely that is exactly what it was right yeah i i and i and i don't know enough yet about the group in general to say okay we have a destructive cult here yes but we certainly but we certainly have 
I would say a destructive activity. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> now the value judgment, excuse me, um, on that is, is bias because you have two opposing views, right? You have, well, homosexuality is bad and you have, well, homosexuality is a natural state and there's nothing wrong with it. And, and what's the issue, right? Right. And you have very strong opinions, very strong opinions about this on both sides. Yes. I mean, the people who are doing this are not thinking and trying to be insidious, evil, horrible people. They're doing this because they truly believe that what they're doing is is the right thing to do Absolutely. to help people out, right? And they think it's the loving thing to do. Exactly. Now, the problem, of course, enters in that, you know, so did Hitler. So yes. you kind of go, okay, <laughs> well, you know, you, we can justify lots of things, right? We're, we're very capable of using our rationality to justify extremist, insane activity. Yes. So it's not just, I don't give them a pass just because they have good intentions, because yes. if you're doing bad, evil things, it doesn't matter what your intentions are. Yeah. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. And it just so, shows the power of ideas and in, in that ideas well, that, that's have exactly a, right. Yeah. Ideas have a life of their own. And there are fundamentally toxic ideas, damaging ideas, and then fundamentally uh, good and healthy ideas. Exactly. And I think for me, not being a Christian and not being involved in in that kind of interpretation of the Bible, I look at that as, uh, you know, what's the problem? I, right. I don't, I don't, you know, I'm sort of in the, in the, not the middle necessarily, because I think I would be more in the direction of, uh, look, what's the problem here? Why is this an issue? Why, why is it that God loves everybody except he doesn't love these guys who are his creation because they, you know, have a same sex orientation? How does that make them evil, horrible, awful people who will never, you know, get, can't be uh, earning the grace of God. I, I, I don't understand that logic. I've never understood that reasoning. It's never made any sense to me because I've always thought that the Christian idea is supposed to be that God is great, God is forgiving, God is love, God is grace. And so why would this be, you know, if a serial killer can, can on his deathbed, can claim to exactly. accept Christ into his heart, and be accepted into the kingdom of heaven, how come a homosexual has to, you know, be relegated to a life of, of sin and debauchery and horribleness merely because he is expressing or she is expressing uh, their love for whoever it is that they choose to love? How is this such a horrible, awful thing? I've never been able to get my wits around that except for, you know, you take you you cherry pick a couple choice quotes out of Leviticus and suddenly an entire swath of the population are evil and must be destroyed. Exactly. Or or are fundamentally broken in their in their natural state, are are fundamentally damned in their natural state. And it kind of goes back to this idea of costly grace. Costly grace is is a term that Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the the German theologian used, basically saying, yeah, God's love is free to us, but it demands a great price of us, and it demands transformation, which is not free, for one. Right. But that's that's the idea: is that His love is is freely given, but it is costly, and it demands great sacrifice if we accept it. Yeah, I think what we're dealing with here are are a group of people who are really have some very off or you know almost <laughs> unnatural ideas yes about how people actually are yes and and i and we're really going to come down to simply a disagreement of opinion i mean really is what it comes down to mm. uh you know i my opinion not between you and me i mean between them but those who who have such an adamant uh, wall against homosexuality and those of us who can look at it a little bit more accepting as God is a more accepting and Jesus is a more accepting person because we look at the sum total of all of the statements made in the Bible and go, well, you know, this is supposed to be a person who or a, a being who created us, imbued us with life, loves us for who we are, you know, and 
Uh, and if you can have that accepting, loving view of God, then all of this falls by the wayside. The whole point of homosexuality becomes moot. Yes, absolutely. And that, to me, has always been the, the more uh, acceptable and uh, easy to understand interpretation of who God is. And yeah, who and, Jesus and who Jesus is. is. Absolutely. Right. And so yeah. to to force this change on someone, it, it doesn't. It just doesn't make any sense when you look at the the things we've been discovering and researching in science and biology, you know, with science, or with biology, rather, with uh, sociology, with uh, sexuality. You know, we, we, we haven't always had, <laughs> it's been pretty clear in the 19th and 20th centuries here, uh, that we haven't always had this all figured out. And yes. 2,000 years ago, they very definitely did not have all of this stuff figured out. And so change should be acceptable in society, uh, in a culture, and it shouldn't have to be that we have to, you know, hearken back to or or fall back to our our, our Stone Age beliefs in a modern culture, right? Cultures evolve. So that's kind of really where the argument comes down to in terms of gay conversion therapy. It's it, I, I feel that it is a psychologically and emotionally destructive activity because it's going, it creates this cognitive dissonance, Absolutely. which is so harmful. Absolutely. And, that, and unfortunately, you had to experience that. Yeah. I will, I, I'll be clear since we're going to have to wrap up shortly that from what we've talked about, it's not clear to me that this group is a destructive cult because they engage in gay conversion therapy. But gay conversion therapy in and of itself is a destructive activity. Is destructive. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. so, yeah. So I'm looking at the time here, and unfortunately, we're going to need to wrap up soon. But it, how, as, as anybody, I think, who's listening can tell, there's a lot to this. There is so much to this. And one of the things that I have taken away from this from this exploration of my experience is that organizations and communities don't always fit into this hard um, into into hard binaries where they are either totally good or totally bad, totally destructive. Yeah, totally destructive cult or totally awesome, wonderful, free community. It, very often there are destructive elements interspersed in a lot of communities to varying degrees. And what makes YWAM difficult, and if you are considering going to YWAM or you have a friend in YWAM, it depends on the base. There are some bases that are more destructive than others. There are some bases that, are, that have a more totalitarian leadership than others. And a lot of organizations really do exist on this gradation, on this spectrum mm-hmm. of of damaging. And so the experience that I had was very very damaging because of the gay conversion stuff and it's taken me the you know the rest of my 20s to get over that, to recover from that because the inner repeated trauma was very very deep. Just because something is cast in a positive light, just because an organization does good does not mean it won't have damaging elements. And just because an organization is cast as all bad does not mean it won't have some positive elements. And there is this vast spectrum. And I think what I take away from this is to just be vigilant, regardless of what organization or church or ministry or whatever we're in, because ideas have power and personalities have power and we are incredibly susceptible to both and mm-hmm. and they can crop up anywhere they can crop up in ywam they can crop up in a church they can be more extreme or less so and so i guess what i take away from this is to just be perpetually vigilant and to think critically and uh, to understand that there's uh, there's the potential for danger everywhere and that doesn't mean we should be afraid but it means that we just need to be vigilant and awake exactly Exactly. Um, this spectrum business is important. Yes. This idea of looking at things not in a non-black and white, non-absolutist fashion is is very, very important to critical thinking um, because there are a number of these characteristics that are apparent in YWAM. And 
And I think uh, individually, people could look at their experience in YWAM and go, I was in a cult. Absolutely. And, you know, and go, OK, fine. You know, that was your experience with it. Um, in, in objectively examining a group like YWAM, you can't just take one or two or even five people's experience and go, OK, now I'm because they five people had a bad experience. I'm now going to say this entire thing is a destructive cult. Is a destructive right? absolutely. absolutely. You have to look at the big picture of the thing, right? Yeah. Um, this is something you know somebody uh, you know might call me out on saying what I just said because uh, you know a lot of what we talk about with Scientology has to do with former members sharing their stories and talking about the situation. And yet, in my book, I laid out why Scientology is a destructive cult and it has nothing to do with in one person's story or two people's story or three people's story. It has to do with what is this group actually doing? Yes, absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Converting people to Christ is not in and of itself a destructive activity. No, no, it isn't. You know, encouraging people to go out and, and disseminate and, and engage in missionary activity. There's nothing destructive about that. Absolutely. Right. So and, we have to we have to kind of look at the bigger picture of it, too, which is why I think in the last hour we haven't come to a definitive answer. But I don't want anybody thinking, oh, well, Chris, you know, cult guy says it's not a destructive cult. I didn't say that. Right. I said I said in this last hour, we've only touched on part of the situation with this group. It takes a bigger, longer look. And that's what I'm trying to get across to your audience. And and, you know, there are the nuances of ideas where some ideas are, are destructive and others aren't. And I think that's where a lot of the the cognitive dissonance also comes from is this because they're they, they were genuinely good people who did something really awful, which was try to change me from gay to straight. Mm -hmm. They did that because they had an idea of what was loving. And that idea took on a life of its own. And 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 so I, you know, basically what I am taking away from this conversation is also what I took away in my article that I wrote and just what I've reflected over the past several years on YWAM is that like many organizations, they inhabit an uncomfortable interstitial space of of uh, of ambiguity. You know, they're they're mm -hmm. not they're not Scientology. They're not Heaven's Gate <laughs> by any stretch. Exactly. By any exactly. stretch of the imagination. But that doesn't mean that they can't do harm. Um, but that also doesn't. But that doesn't mean that they aren't that they don't do good work. And and a lot of human experience and a lot of organizations fall into that uncomfortable in between place. And the goal is to not. And so the point is to not typecast these organizations or things or other people as totally bad or totally good but in but instead to develop our own critical thinking skills in general to Correct. identify destructive ideas potential pitfalls um and that's the goal and i feel like that's what i'm driving at with this is human nature is complicated human communities are complicated they have the potential for harm. YWAM has done lots of harm and lots of good. What we need to do is develop the, those thinking skills so that we can navigate life because we come across damaging ideas, dangerous ideas, potentials for cultish behavior all the time. And exactly. Every yes. day. Every day. It's us. Every day. Well, well, Chris, thank you so much for doing this. I hope we can do this again. I really enjoy talking to you. Where can people find you? At uh, mncriticalthinking.com is my website, which has uh, all my videos, articles, and various things posted on it. And I can be found on YouTube as Chris Shelton, uh, Critical Thinker at Large. Wonderful. All right. Well, if you have any questions, if you have comments, if you have your own experiences with Youth with a Mission or similar organizations, please let me know. Send me a tweet. Send me a message on Facebook. You can comment at sbradfordlong.com. I'd love to hear from you. Music for the show is by The Jelly Rocks. The artwork is by Justin Caleb Bryant. Also, it would be really helpful if you enjoy the show to write a nice little review for me on iTunes or wherever you listen. That will help me get a greater reach. Thank you so much. I will see you next week. 